All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, for a Tuesday episode, our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren, is here with us. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning. Did you hear the thunder and lightning this morning? Yeah, <laughs> I heard about 5.30. Yeah. Was there any before that? I don't know. I wasn't up before. I was I was counting on you to be on patrol earlier than 5.30. So I was 5.30, but then this morning, I was in an Uber because Lyle um, hurt his knee and he's on crutches, so we, were, we had to drive to school, and the driver said that it started around 4 a.m. Really? Yeah, 4 a.m. Wow. It, I, I did think I had a little Putin moment when I heard the like the the, the sound of the thunder because it was like the kind of Here thunder you do not hear in New York. Yeah. It's like it was like so. It was really loud. The first one, I was loud. like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, that's old news by now. It's but you know the weather in New York, everybody's interested in that everywhere. Of course. Um, Who isn't? Okay, so we have a bunch of different things we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Ozark, the TV show. We're going to talk about. Some of your ideas of how that links to ideas of good living, mm -hmm. um, healthy living. And then we have a bunch of other things we're going to talk about, including the renaming of the Koch Bridge, some other stuff you're working on. But I want to start in the, in the context of Ozark by talking to you about television generally, because we're at a really interesting moment in the way, I mean, we have been we're for a while. We're in the golden but, age of television. Well, no, no. I, I, I see, say. I don't think we are. I think, I think that's the big lie. But, but in any case, we'll get to that in a second. But, um, but one of the things that's happening in the context is like Netflix is suddenly having all this trouble. Like Netflix was, was the golden child of like yeah. television revolutionized everything. Now everyone's like, oh, it's not really a tech company. Those guys don't no, know what they're I mean, doing. Fang was Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Right. Netflix doesn't belong in that, in that pantheon. Right. right. And it no longer is. Right. But no, for they a while, got kicked it was out. considered yeah. that. Um, so I'm going to ask you some questions in context because I'm curious. You're obviously a, a major consumer of tech products and, and media products generally. How many streaming services do you subscribe to? Every okay, one. All of them. So Every single one. Okay. Apple, Peacock, Paramount, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Hulu, and do you do the ones like Disney Plus and HBO Max. Eight. So Criterion or Mubi or any of the like niche ones. I don't you know, know those, but. Um, like four years ago when Lyle was doing boxing, there was a fight we wanted to watch on something called Dazen, D-A-Z-N. Oh, yeah. It's Wait, like, isn't that that guy from... It's the guy from Skipper, John Skipper. Skipper, John Skipper, I think yeah. he's now moved on to other stuff because okay. I, I had a call with him like about a year ago. Right. Um, and literally, I can't figure... We've never canceled it. You've so never I've been canceled paying for... $50 a day for... Uh, 20 bucks a month <laughs> for the last four years and we watched one fight. Right. Well, you know, that's how the, that's how the business model yeah. works, I'm sure. Um, and when you were just sitting down... To watch and you don't know what you're going to watch. What's your first go-to? What do you like? HBO Max. HBO Max. I think they have the best quality. And is that typically or Hulu because that's where my TV is. So if I want to watch the Mets, ninety percent of my TV watching is the Mets. Really, ninety percent. Eighty in the season. Yeah, I I watch or listen to in one way or another pretty much every game. And if I'm not watching or listening, I'm following on my phone. And if you're if you're sitting down to watch a Mets game, are you typically doing other stuff? Yeah. Baseball is easy. I'm working. Do you ever watch stuff. another show or do you do that? No, that's, that's too much. <laughs> okay. So, and and where do the best recommendations come from? Do they come from people? Like like when you, when you, when you have something that you know you want to watch, where did that yeah, come from? Yeah, I think so. So people, there's a podcast called The Watch uh, right. on Spotify that I listen to sometimes. Okay. They have pretty good taste in TV. Um, and also, you know, there are things that are either the second season or the third season, something that I liked, or a book that I liked. So like The Flight Attendant, I watched the first season because I enjoyed the book, enjoyed the first season, now we'll watch the second season, right? Um, or on the flip side, like, I really love season one of Russian Doll. We only watched the first episode of season two, but I don't know that we're going to watch any more. You say we, so you are- me, This is me and Harper. So I say Harper and I watch, so the Mets is, is me and Lyle usually, um, or me. Uh, shows, I'd say 70% of the time is me and Harper, 
thirty percent. Like I'm watching the Lakers show on my own. I, and you know, when I do um, Stairmaster, I need a certain amount of TV, so the Lakers show does that. For so me. you do that at home? You do the Stairmaster? We have a Stairmaster at home. Yeah. Wow. Why is Stairmaster? Um, it's I hate to run. Right. So it's sort of and it's it's a much harder workout than an elliptical machine. Right. So but that's why we have it. Do you feel silly sometimes, like on a Stairmaster at your home, or no? That's just normal. No. No. <laughs> I didn't even know I should you, until you, you should just see mentioned the, it. You should see the look Bradley just gave me. Like, what are you? No, whatever. Wasn't wasn't nice. <laughs> um, so, what is your all-time favorite show? If you had to say, oh Jesus, That's just just pick tough. it. Don't like, don't think too hard. Wire, the wire. Okay, and have you rewatched that a number of times? We rewatched only. It once, right? I rewatched. I what I've learned is I don't like rereading or rewatching anything. Really, anything. It feels like all. wasted time. Yeah. Okay. Um, you and I rewatched season three because we did a podcast was on it, it. Season three or season two? It was season three. Okay. Um, and we, I had rec- I put on the syllabus for Columbia last year, although right. I don't think any of them watched it because it was optional. And what are the trends in TV that you like right now, and, and are they that you don't like? Good question. I haven't really thought about that much, but I, I think what I like is um, the the the, fun- the variability of it, right? right? In the sense of rather than there being this formula of a show has to be twenty two minutes plus commercials or forty four minutes plus commercials, and you have to have this many episodes in every season. Something could be five episodes. It could be 18. They all could be 17 minutes. They could be 120 minutes. There and should be more like that, though, yeah, right? Because I, the I like how variable that, it is. But it's not that variable still, really. Mm, like, for it's, example, Ozark, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, right. but came back uh, on Friday for the second half of the last season. And somehow when I looked, I thought it was only three episodes. And then, like, to our great pleasure, there were three more or four more. <laughs> And you like, so the Ozark is sort of a classic, dark, sort of like tortured protagonist, like guy who gets in deeper into something. Yeah, they get in deeper and deeper. Right. And, and then they become, you know, more they get meshed in that lifestyle, the more it goes from something happening to them to right. them doing things Dr- to other driving, people. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of a model that that's like a classic TV narrative model that's been Yeah, here was the thing. So when I was watching over the weekend, kind of what occurred to me, though, is it's a show about problem solving, right? right? Because so the original season is, you know, the Jason Bateman character right. is doing accounting for the cartels. Um, something gets screwed up, and he has to sort of make a lot of money for them quickly. And he moves to the Ozarks to sort of figure out how to launder money in different ways. Right. Um, there was a point after season one where they could have just gotten out of it and been done, and yet they chose not to. His wife, Laura Linney, actually is far more ambitious than, than he is. She's right. really the one who, who drives all of this. Right. But over the course of the four seasons, every episode is, here's a problem, and each problem sort of, if they don't fix it, someone dies, right? right? And they solve it. And then every time, it's like, okay, now we could probably just ride off into the sunset and stop being, you know, this m- drugged up mob family. And yet, they, because you need a TV show, they never do. But what it said to me is, even though it's fictional, it's a TV show, we all say, oh, I wish I could just be on a beach somewhere. I wish I didn't have so many things I had to do. And yet, we like solving problems. We need problems to solve. Right. Um, and I think that this notion of, I think humans need to be active all the time. And that's true both when you look at, I mean, not that Ozark reflects life, but it still reflects the fact that people kind of continually find problems to solve even when they don't have to, right? Or look at me. I don't have to work, and yet I've got 20 different things going on because I need something to do. Um, and you've entertained the notion of, of, of going to a life of crime many times on this podcast, I've too. wondered about it. Well, the question <laughs> we had debated, if you remember, was how much, what would the multiple have to be what you make now right. to choose to go to a life of crime? Like right. 5X, 10X, 20X? 
Or some people might just say that this is my greatest skill. It turns out you would blossom as a, as a crime lord. Um, but the other part is, I know there's two studies over the weekend that I think played into this. So one okay. is a journal called Psychology Health that I'd never heard of, but they did a study of 20,000 adults over the age of 50 over a 14-year period, and what they found is that if their life is purposeful in some way, right. they have an extra five to eight years. Right. And then there was another study um, that actually, I read it in a Jason Gay column in the, in the journal. First, I thought he was fucking around because he, he is funny and he does fuck around a lot. But then I went online <laughs> and it was real. We should have Jason on here to fuck around. He'd be great. <laughs> uh, no, he's, is he on? He, I think we had him on once. Oh, really? No, no. no. We had Matt Yale. He wrote a column about Matt Yale once. He did? Because Matt and his family went to a Dolphins game. And I forget how it ended, but it was like the greatest ending ever in football. And they left to beat the traffic. And oh, somehow yeah. he found out about it. He wrote about Matt, and then Matt came on. Wait, he just randomly found out about Matt. Find, like, I think Matt reached game? out to him or something to expose himself. But uh, anyway, it was a funny column. Okay. Um, there's some other study that said if you walk at a rate of three miles an hour or greater, it will shave 16 years off your biological age. But how much do you have to do that? It wasn't that much. It really? was like, you know, I don't know, a couple hours a week or something Do like you that. walk over three miles an hour? I think hour so. I was trying to do the math. So right. if you think about it. It's 20 blocks. 20 so, blocks is right, a mile. right. I walk 20 blocks in less than 20 minutes. So right. 20, mi- 20 blocks is three miles an hour if you do it in 20 minutes, okay. right? Because 60 blocks, that's right. right. Um, I think I do it about probably 15 on average, right? Okay. So I think I walk probably like 3.5. Now, where it gets a little screwed up is with the dog because he's, he's really old now and he stops every two seconds. You should get a new dog. Or pee. Yeah. We got a cat, okay. um, but the cat doesn't <laughs> like to go outside. Um, so, but, but what it said to me is it, not only does it sort of make sense inherently, and Ozark probably wouldn't be so popular if that basic concept of sort of needing to co- have more problems to solve didn't resonate with people, but then based on science too, or, or studies at least, um, we need action. We need stuff to do. We need stuff to think about. We need to feel stuff. And as much as we say to ourselves, I just wish everything would calm down, we don't mean it. Well, but it's, it comes and goes, right? Like, like you definitely max out at things, and then you do need to, like, you know, like, chill. Well, I move on to something else, but it's pretty rare that there's just a full chill-out period. What if there was a study that showed that if you gardened for three hours a day, you get an extra 20 years? Do you think you could, you think you could do that? No. No, you do. You, I could see. You don't think, don't like, think you just... So. What about Harper? You guys couldn't start gardening? She, like, she tried. Yeah. Uh, we have a garden upstate. Uh-huh. And she had a year or two where she was kind of into it. Um, and then we had a year or two where like the stuff all came out very weird, like watermelons were yellow and things like that. Oh, really? And then it's just basically been a thing of weeds for the last couple of years. <laughs> it was just completely abandoned. She lost interest, yeah. Can you get people to do it, though? So yeah, of course. But right. you know, the, the point was that she wanted her to do this thing. So what? Uh, let's talk about the healthy stuff. So the brisk walking, for example. Now you have you you have a stairmaster in your house. You work yeah. out kind of regularly. Um, what do you consider like the most healthy thing you do? Like, what's the thing when you think like, oh, I'm in pretty good shape because I do this? Is that like, exercise? Exercise. So I probably. Ex- I I try to exercise five times a week. And what are the things that are the the other way where you're like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that? Like, it's diet, right? For sure. But you don't diet. No, but I mean, I try to eat healthy, but right. I don't think I. And the problem is. Even though I try to eat healthy, I eat out so many meals right. that even if you order like the fish and a salad, it's still not as healthy as if you make it at home, right? And, and what's your strategy then for like going to like Mets games? Do you like just not eat? Depends. General? So right. I went Saturday night, right? And I felt like oh, I had had lunch with Abby at ABCV that day, so I had like vegan food for lunch. Ooh. I was like, fuck uh, it. So I had a pastrami sandwich <laughs> and fries. Wait, I think that's defeating the purpose, though. Right? Uh, I don't know. You know, okay. um, yeah. but. 
the other day when I was there, I ordered the spicy tuna roll, and it was actually not that bad. Wait, at City Field, yeah. you had the spicy tuna and roll? And it wasn't that bad. And What uh, accounts for that, do you think? Why is it like, like, like 10 years if ago? You're, if, if you're me, if you're people like me, and you're going to lots of games, and you don't want to like double your cholesterol over the course of a season, it's, it's like a pretty good option. But why is a spicy tuna roll edible now when 10 years ago you would never order a spicy tuna roll? To, is it's a question. flash freezing, do you think? Is that all Yeah, it is? I, th- I think some of it's that, and I think some of it is just like the norms change, right? Like 20 years ago, the only decent supermarket out there was Whole Foods, right? Now Whole Foods is kind of average because most supermarkets have had to raise their game to kind of be on the same level. I think that's true with sushi as well. The Gristidis near me has not raised That's disgusting, game. yeah. <laughs> Um, you and I are going to the Mets game tomorrow, so we will try. A, I'll, I'm going to get a spicy tuna roll and, and share it with you. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and did you, um, do you? You don't track your steps on your iPhone, do you? You know, I, I no, I do. Um, I try. You know, I. There are days where I get over ten thousand. I would say the reality is I average about seventy five hundred. Okay, and do you have a goal? So ten is like your ten is the goal, but it's arbitrary based. And it turns out like the ten thousand was just in the same way like breakfast was just a marketing breakfast most important meal of the day was just a marketing scam. Ten thousand steps is, was also just some sort of marketing scam. So I don't think there's any science to it. Wait, what is the deal with breakfast? So it, it went from the most important meal of the day to like now you sh- now with like you know. Like like uh, what's it called? Fasting the, um, the intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting. Like you like people don't eat breakfast again. Harper back to not eating fast. She doesn't eat breakfast. Um, I sometimes just have coffee. Sometimes I'll have something else. But yeah, I don't. But if I don't eat, I don't feel like I have to eat breakfast. Well, you can have coffee on intermittent fasting. Yeah, yeah she has black coffee. Right. Oh, um, just black. You can't have the. Yeah, you can't have milk. I do. I have all milk. But and how does that work out for Harper? Does she feel like a different person with the intermittent fasting? You know, Harper has chronic Lyme disease, and so I think for her to feel healthy, she has to really take care of herself. Right. That's a good thing, I suppose. Um, okay, so we should we talk about the... Um, Koch? The Koch Bridge? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, so why don't you lay out what's... So So the Koch Bridge, which, by the way, have you ever referred to it as a Koch Bridge? Never. So it's the Queensboro Bridge. It's Queensboro, or 59th Street Bridge. 59th 59 Street Bridge, right? No one even calls yeah, it it's Queensboro. Queensboro. Yeah, 59th yeah. Street. It's on 59th Street, obviously. It goes, right. to, it goes to Queensboro. I've never heard of anyone say anything other than the 59th Street Bridge. Do you Bridge. ever take it? Pretty rarely, because yeah. I don't live uptown. I think if you live uptown, you might take it, but pretty rarely. Yeah, I can't even. I remember just being in traffic jams on it because people t- yeah. people take it to avoid the toll on the Midtown right. Tunnel. Right. And so, then look, the Triborough. It, that's not actually the name. It's like the RFK. No, I was on the RFK I, I bridge yesterday because I had to go to Randall's Island. In your mind, it was the Triborough. Of course. Well, and it's annoying to see it say RFK because you're just like. Well, whatever. you know, I also because it was Elliot Spitzer who at the time thought he was going to run for president. Right. Trying to suck up to the Kennedy family, who, as we've discussed in this podcast, has no political juice in this country whatsoever. Anyway, in fact, it might even be a negative. <laughs> um, but it was so annoying because this like horrible man did it for such blatantly, you know, political purposes. Or Hugh Carey, who I think actually was a pretty good governor and a decent guy from what I hear. Um, I still call it the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Yeah. Well, and well, that's another one. Do you ever take the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Um, when you go out to Brooklyn? You yeah. Think? If we're going to like Charlie's house or something like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the so the 59th Street Bridge was renamed Koch Bridge. What, what was so that? Here, like, here's tw- how 20 years happened. ago? It was under it was under it was 2011. Bloomberg. So okay. I, I was involved. You were involved. So I was too young to sort of be involved with Koch when he was mayor. But um, he and Mike were close. And Mike, when he became mayor, brought in a lot of Koch people because his view was his team didn't really understand how city government worked. Right. So I want to have a balance of people who really get it and new people with new ideas. Right. Um, so Koch was kind of on Team Bloomberg. And then in the 2009 mayoral campaign. We used him a lot. You know, he was right. still very popular, and he would be in ads for us and events and all kinds of stuff. So he and I got friendly. 
he launched in 2010 uh, a campaign called the New York Uprising, I think it was called. And he basically had this pledge around redistricting, budgeting, and some other blatant political thing. And we forced basically every politician in the state to sign it by saying, if you sign the pledge, you're a hero of reform. If you don't sign it, you're an enemy of reform. And by just basically, people wanted this fucking little sticker or whatever it was for their website. Now, look, the bad news is everybody signed it. No one did a damn thing about it. Right. But um, in doing that, and I, we did it like as a pro bono project just because I loved Ed. Right. Um, he and I became very friendly. Okay. And so then. How, he must have been a pretty old guy. He was old. Point. He was right. in his 80s at right. that point. Um, but still pretty, pretty but good But really out. with it. Yeah, 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 really with it. Right. Um, Although I remember the only time it went bad was I, he's, he was always a mo- he did a movie critic, right? Right. He would review movies. And I recommended that he see Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> he called me like, why did you recommend this movie to me? I'm why like, did you recommend that movie? I loved it. That Hot was Tub Time Machine? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, anyway, he didn't like it. So uh, Mike wanted to do something nice for Ed. Okay. Chris Quinn, who was then the Speaker of the City Council and was running for mayor in 2013, this wanted- This feels like light years ago, doesn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, wanted Ed's endorsement. So I was kind of working on like lining Ed up for Chris. Right. And kind of just, I was sort of in the middle of some of this stuff. And it happened. So the city council passed the bill. I remember the event where we, you know, it all happened. We, was, it, was it meaningful to him? I think so. Yeah. yeah okay. it, it felt that way. Um, so the, but the reason we're talking about now is a bunch of city council members have said Koch was insufficiently progressive on gay issues because he was gay or that he's never been outed as gay, but he, they believe he's gay. And therefore, the name should be stripped from him. And then today... Uh, it was much nastier than that, some of the quotes, though. It wasn't just that he was like a closeted... A uh, gay guy who didn't do enough to to support the rights of uh, gay rights. One of the quotes from the, the the guy I think he was sort of organizing was like, "In view of the fact that Ed Koch has been documented to have caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people with AIDS, caused the yeah. deaths." Yeah. I mean, this is the world we live in. This is well, our next topic is Twitter. This is why Twitter should be abolished because it it incentivizes people to say stupid things like that. Um, so, but look. So that, and then today there was. An I would refuse to answer a question that was. That, I mean, so this this got sent out on a questionnaire that then you know people like AOC responded yeah. to. Wouldn't you just be like, hey, why don't you ask an adult question? Like, I mean, it, de- it depends on this is what we're going to talk about, right. kind of where you're coming from, right? If your if your path to victory is going far left, then you're going to embrace this shit. If your path to victory is center, then then you're not, right? right. Um, or. Sometimes centrists like Hakeem Jeffries, I think he signed on to this, or maybe it was the, the Columbus statue one. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Hakeem's pretty centrist, but I think he just doesn't want issues with the left, right? right. So he's just like, fuck it, who cares? But this is sort of the point, right? So there's the Koch Bridge controversy now. There's a, a woman running for Congress from the Democratic primary in Staten Island called to take down the Columbus statue uh, yesterday. Um, that, you know, that, that's AOC already project. failed, though. They, it's they, come up before. Right. But so. My initial reaction, if you remember the the, 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 the quintessential example of this was the San Francisco school board trying to rename all the schools right. there, is I think like a lot of middle-aged white guys like me, which is like, this is crazy. Why are we wasting time on this? You know, And so, so I thought about two things. One is, well, do they have a point, right? Right. So how much does symbolism matter? And I think the answer is it doesn't not matter. Right. But it doesn't matter nearly as much as the actual substance of things, right? Right. Then it kind of hit me, like, rather than getting all worked up and upset about all of this, let them have it, right? Instead of being so upset every time they want to rename something, we should create, like, a, a dedicated group to fighting the renaming of pretty much anything that's not horrific 
just as a rope dump strategy. Keep the far left. Let them focus on names of bridges and statues and schools rather than getting into actual substance where they're going to fuck things up even more. So I think what we should actually do is say, yeah, let's have this debate as much as we possibly can. We could even suggest ones um, <laughs> just so that— Wait, do that- you have some suggestions? Well, that's that's what they're focused on. Um, I don't know. Like, I, like you, you and I talked before the podcast. I don't know who Verrazano was, but I'm sure he did bad shit. We who, could we could rename. We could visit that. Wait, Verrazano wasn't mayor, was he? No, no, I don't know what he was. But but anyway, if you went through every bridge, every tunnel, every park in New York, you'd find plenty of people who you could complain about, right? The best thing to do in retrospect is fight about all of it, right? Right. right. And just say we're going to dedicate 10 percent of our team to fighting with the left and sucking up all of their time. And ninety percent to actually running the government, and trying to get things done. But as we were doing a little prelim on the on the episode today, you, you had kind of a brilliant idea that actually, with certain roadways in New York City in particular, they have such an incredibly oh, negative yeah. connotation right. that we could use them in an almost opposite way. Right. Right. So like, right, okay, like the, so the Van Wick, like, yeah, why don't we name it the Trump? The Trump. Right? Oh, it's, it's right through his neighborhood too. Like right, that's Jamaica right. States. Yeah. Yeah, it's right out there. Um, right. So take take the the worst, the Cross Bronx Expressway, the Major Deacon, the Bruckner, <laughs> or in Chicago, the Dan Ryan. Was always like that, or whatever in LA, the I 10, or whatever, and just name it for terrible people and say, This is gonna be your legacy now. So, the Trump, who else could we put on a highway in New York? So, if we, I think the Van Wick for Trump is perfect, I think that's perfect. It's it's geographically appropriate, and also everyone hates the Van Wick, it's the worst. And then, but like, who should get the Cross Bronx? Maybe they should just name it after Robert Moses, right? The Moses, like he, you know, he, I don't think he would mind though. No, he might not mind, but it would it would make people feel well, make them feel better. But you're right. It's another way to distract the left, right. and keep them from doing anything of substance. Give them that. Give well, just suggest it, right? And they'll <laughs> fall for it every time. They'll go down the rabbit hole every single time. So, yeah, I think we got to build this idea out a little bit. I think I'll write a column on it. I think it's a good idea. I, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so. I've, we've talked about so much already, and we still have some time left. Yeah, so we're going to go over today. We're going to go. Are you feeling it? Yeah, I'm feeling <laughs> it. All right. Next thing I want to talk about is is uh, Twitter. Twitter? Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Of course. So my you wrote your common Fast Company, fast company last week. It, we talked about this a little bit already, and, and sometimes what happens is either we'll talk about stuff on a podcast, and that'll germinate into a column or right. vice versa. Right. And that's kind of what happened here. But I was thinking about, like, okay, what's the best? If Elon Musk just wanted to help society, what's the best thing he could do you with could Twitter? shut it down? Shut it down. Right. right. It is one of the most toxic inventions in human history. But wait, I want to back up for one second. Obviously, it's become toxic. But part of the premise of your story was that do you think that it was – like when it was being pitched and sort of yeah, like well I'm gonna get to that, but, okay. but, but that's okay. right. right. So the we know Twitter is toxic. Right. We know that it causes massive amounts of polarization and dysfunction and, and right. hatred, and it's also ruined journalism, right? Because journalists, instead of trying to write the best stories they can, right. are solely focused on likes and retweets, right. regardless of anything else, right. and so it's totally perverted the entire industry. Right. So okay. He's not going to shut it down, obviously. He's going to try to use it for his own purposes to pump up Tesla and SpaceX once they go public stock even more. And that's why I think he's doing this. But the question is, what's the responsibility of venture capitalists like me to fund or not fund things, not based on the returns, but based on societal impact, right? right? And I think there's some. So it's obviously in 2007, whenever they were funding Twitter, yeah, I could see how both Jack Dorsey as the founder and whatever VCs backed him um, couldn't have predicted what it would turn into. But, but back up with your in your own reflection a little bit. Do you remember when you first heard about Twitter, first looked at it, what your impressions of it were? 
you remember? You know, I, yeah, it was the 2009 mayoral campaign. Okay. You know, we set up a Twitter account for Mike. Right. Um, it just felt, felt very nascent more yeah. than anything else. Right. You know, it was just sort kind of, of like, goofy. You know, we wanted to always be on the cutting edge of everything, and right. so we were. But I don't think it had any impact whatsoever. Um, and then, look, I'm not a social media user, right? I'm, the only account I have is a Twitter account, which Megan maintains and updates. I don't even look at it. I right. don't know the password um, because I think it's terrible. Well, they took the password from you, right? right. Yeah. Well, forget about <laughs> – and I was, I was never great to it. I just didn't want to do it at all. Right. Like, forget about 16 years off your biological age by walking fast or eight years if you have a purposeful life. Put social media. That will probably have, like, 50 years to your life. <laughs> um, so advice. I don't use it. But um, here's the point. There are startups – where they seem fine and they turn bad. Okay, that's one situation. There are startups that are debatable, right? So take Uber. I would argue that Uber was an incredible invention for society because we took a totally corrupt, dirty, disgusting industry in taxi, disrupted it completely, gave consumers vastly better options, created a lot of jobs, cut down on drunk driving considerably, and the issue of people of color being passed over by a cab you know, vastly less uh, with ride sharing than, than it is for taxis. So I think we did a lot of good for society. Other people would see it differently. They would say you're exploiting the drivers or look what it did to the taxi drivers or whatever else. Debatable. Some are not debatable. Jewel. So Jewel was pitched to Jordan and me a bunch of times. And, you know, if, if it were only a company to replace adult cigarette smoking with vaping, I don't know that it would have been, might have been societally good. You could even argue it's better. Where, was it, did that argument ever sort of resonate That's with you? That's kind of what they said, but, right. but they were so obvious that when you have like banana mint and like, you know, cotton candy and all these ridiculous flavors, it's like clearly right. um, that's not your business model. I remember even saying to them, if you guys want to not sell to kids and get rid of all these flavors, like we'll talk to you. Um, obviously, that wasn't what they what they wanted was right. they didn't need our money. They wanted me to solve their political problem, right. which I wasn't willing to do it. So we turned that down. Yeah, and look, would our LPs have made more money had we done it? Absolutely, but no one complained. I think everyone's cool about it. So the question just becomes, how when you are looking at an investment as venture capital? So for us, we look at early stage, right? So the total addressable market the founder, the idea. Those are right. really the three big things. Right. Um, when and how much do you factor societal impact into it as well, um, both good or bad? Do you right. lean into something a little more if you think it's going to be really good, even if it's not a great investment? Jen, probably not. Um, but do you shy away from stuff that you think probably could be a pretty good investment if you know it's going to be bad? You know, that might be more probably yes. I don't think that's the mentality in the venture capital world today, but I think in seeing the havoc that, Triver, that Twitter has wrought, um, you know, we should be thinking like that. Right. Um, and what, but let's go back a little bit, like, like to, to what Twitter actually was. Like, do you have a sense of where those decisions got made that sort of set it down its path? Or Yeah. yeah. I, th I think fundamentally, this is true for Twitter, for Facebook, for every platform. It's very simple. They make money on ads. Right. They can charge more money for ads if more people see them. Right. Despite what people say, negative controversy always sells better than positive content. Right. And so the more toxic, the more controversial the content on Twitter feed or Facebook or Instagram or wherever else, the more people click, the more people see it, which generates more money from ad revenue. And so I would believe that all of the platforms deliberately encouraged this type of behavior, um, at least by sort of not moderating content, not looking, looking the other way when clear hate speech was on there, seeing that there was a massive problem developing and ignoring it completely, and they did it for their own economic well-being. And so, yeah, I think Twitter is completely complicit in all of this. And part of the column was to call it Jack Dorsey, who I think talked about how like Twitter is a public good. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You made a couple of billion dollars <laughs> building this thing that like, 
devastated our social discourse. And you, you have no right to talk about any public good, right? You should be lucky that you're not beheaded. Um, so, you know, like, like saying Twitter is a public good is like saying anthrax is a public good. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about some of the other things you're 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 up to. Um, you first of all, let's let's we're, we talk the nature of fandom. Do you want to talk about? No, no, we don't talk about. We can talk about the nature. We talked about the Mets a little bit. Let's 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 talk about the nature of fandom. I have a question for you, a specific question on yeah. that though. So, if the Mets are playing well, yeah, how much does that like improve your just general? A, a lot, which is the does? point I wanted to make. Right. Okay. So uh, I, I took some notes. Why do the Mets make me so happy or miserable? Right. right? And Look, I'm generally pretty self-focused, right? I think about the shit that I'm interested in, what I'm doing, um, and some of that stuff hopefully is designed to help other people. But right. yeah, I'm, I'm pretty self-absorbed. I don't think anyone who knows me would, would disagree with that, right? <laughs> and so the question is, these 26 people who I don't know, who are doing something silly, they're throwing a ball, they're hitting a ball, they're catching a ball, or same thing in any other sport, kicking, football, just, you know, passing, whatever it is, right? Why is this silly thing have meaning um, if by definition it doesn't, my life doesn't actually change in any way, shape, or form if the Mets win or lose. Well, it does maybe, though, right? Well, well but I'm saying okay. tangibly, right. Right. right? Okay, right. And I think it's that, you know, it's sort of the almost the opposite of Twitter, right? Which is we want to buy into something larger, right? We want to share something with other people. Like with sports, I can talk to people who are total strangers. So Harper and I were in Charleston the other weekend. We get in the Uber from the airport. Guy's got like Trump shit all over the Uber. <laughs> Um, but he had like an Atlanta Braves thing, and I said, oh, you're a Braves fan. Congratulations on the World Series. Next 30 minutes, we just talked about sports. Harper must have been thrilled. Uh, you know, she th actually thought it was, it was certainly better than, than right, talking about Trump. Right. Um, that's the point. I can talk about sports to any other sports fan, at least the sports that I watch in the U.S., right. um, regardless of anything else. Right. So I think it creates a bond. It creates a mechanism. Look, uh, half my relationship with my father is talking about sports, yeah. right? Um, my entire relationship with your father is talking about sports. Yeah, well, you know, of course. <laughs> um, and so if Twitter's basically about tearing apart the fabric society and pitting us against each other, sports brings us together, right? Or when it pits us together, it's in sort of nominal ways that we don't, other than Philadelphia fans, that no one actually takes seriously beyond <laughs> the game itself. Um, so, um, I, you know, because ultimately, yeah, why do the actions of these of these twenty six people who I've I've never met a single player on the Mets, right? Ever? Not ever, yes, right. but I mean of this this roster, right? In part because like I guess I could, but like I don't want to go. Out. What do I care? I don't. What would meeting Francisco Lindor do for me? Also, Nothing. They don't, they don't want to meet you, right? But I like watching him play baseball, <laughs> right? Um, do you like his blue hair? I do. Yeah, okay. I do. I think it's pretty cool. Okay. Um, so I guess the point is because first I was like maybe this is so silly that here I am working on things that I believe are really societally impactful and important, and I'm spending a lot of time and a lot of energy worrying about the Mets, right? right? And on one hand, it's crazy. So the Mets, today, baseball is requiring teams to reduce their roster size from 28 to 26. By right. noon today, they have to make that decision. Right. I've spent is, an enormous amount of time. Is going down? I, no, he went four for four last night. I know, but. I think Kenosha got cut. But the point is, oh, I've spent an enormous amount of time thinking about this unbelievably stupid, irrelevant thing. Right? Is Cano going to go? I hope so. I guess by the time this is... I don't is... know. Apparently Lindor wants it to stay, so we'll see. We'll, we'll know by the time this... I'm sure everyone will already know the answer to this one. This All the tomorrow, listeners. Yeah, who, who wouldn't be obsessed with this? <laughs> but the, the, the point is, sometimes something that seems totally facile can have real value, right? right? And so when we talk about... If you think about the things we talked about in this podcast, one is the notion of people needing purpose and activity even when they think that they just want quiet, or the notion of social media platforms being designed to divide people and tear them apart, 
Um, sports is really an antidote to that. Wow, Bradley, look at you bringing together all the themes of the podcast in I one. I couldn't bring the Koch Bridge into it, but otherwise I, I, think I got it, the rest of them. Well, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think you Except should. all the assholes wandering in the Koch Bridge live on Twitter. Right. So you, you can kind of connect it tangentially <laughs> that way. Um, wait, let me, uh, just to timestamp and test your medal as a, as a Mets expert, yeah. who are the two players they're sending down? Well, so Sean Reed Foley towards UCL on so Saturday. He's out. he's out. There's another reliever, Lopez, who just came up. He'll be out. But they actually drew a third because Taiwan Walker was was on the IL and he came up and took a roster spot. So it's going to be either J.D. Davis, Cano, Luis Guillorme, or Dominic Smith. It seems clear to me that Robinson Cano is 38, 39 years old, has no bat speed, was suspended all of last year for the second time in his career for steroids, um, and they should let so, him go. So it should, but will they? I think I bet it's Guillaume. Guillaume. Yeah. Okay. Although I, I wish it were not. Um, let's let's just talk about the bookstore. I know there's some other stuff. I want to do a couple others, but you do. Uh, yeah. Okay. So okay. He, just because a couple of them are very. As I often current. say, it's your podcast. Yes, I've, I've noticed that. Um, <laughs> so a few, a few announcements. P and T Knitwear opens Memorial Day weekend. Uh, 180 Orchard Street between I, Houston and Stanton. I got an awesome invitation to the, yeah, you to did. the open card. Um, yeah. So uh, please check it out. Uh, just for those of you who haven't heard before, it is a bookstore that we're opening. It is also a podcast studio that is free for anyone to use. Where it's, is this bookstore? It is on Orchard between Houston and Stanton. 182 Orchard Street. 180 Orchard. Yeah. 180? 180. 180. My God, yeah. I was thinking 182. Um, 180 Orchard Street. So we have a podcast studio. So if you're interested in hosting a podcast and you need a place to do it, we'll give it to you for free. Um, it's an event space that's amphitheater seating for 80 to 100 people. Looks so good. Free to the community. Um, the cafe will only be staffed by people who are formerly incarcerated. And Julie tells me, Julie is the, the Julie Wurzenbach runs our bookstore. We are the only bookstore that she's ever heard of that's giving benefits to not only full-time employees, but to hourly employees as well. So, um, so Julie's going to be on the podcast right around yeah, the time. Yeah, so the the, when too, we yeah. open on May 26th, the 27th really, um, yeah, the three of us will, will do a podcast at the site. And then we'll be moving this podcast physically to the bookstore um, going forward. But anyway, what I want to build is something really iconic that – when people are going to the Lower East Side and they're like, I want to stop by this, this, and this, it's on their list. When tourists are visiting New York and they go to the Lower East Side. Right. I want to be the catches of, of, of books, I guess. <laughs> and the reason it's called P&T Knitwear, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are sick of hearing this, but is um, when my family came to this country in the 50s, if you were an uneducated Jew, and anyone who survived the Holocaust was definitionally that, um, there weren't that many job fields you can get jobs in, right? Because a lot of anti-Semitism, plus you didn't have any education. But the garment industry obviously was one that, that was very open and available. Right. And so my family lived in refugee camps uh, in Germany for five years after the war. And when they came over to this country, my grandfather and a guy named Mike Pudlow, who he knew from the refugee camps, mm-hmm. uh, opened a business called P&T Knitwear, Pudlow and Tusk. And they had a 400-square-foot store on the Lower East Side. 400-square-foot. To sell sweaters. And of which, according to my dad... A lot of the shelves were filled with empty boxes just to make it look like they had inventory. Wow. And um, when Wait, do any P&T knitwear sweaters survive? You know, my Uncle Dennis might still have some. Uh, we should get some for the— Yeah, uh, I, 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 I may well get him to bring one to the opening. Yeah, we, should, <laughs> we can hang it. We frame it. Like a, Lyle's got a framed, signed, the Grom jersey in his room. Right. You got like a framed, signed, uh, you know— P&T knitwear P&T sweater. Knitwear. So um, when I realized this is the same neighborhood, I texted my dad when I said— what was the name of the store? And he said, P&T Knitwear. And I said, oh, that'd be a cool name. And he goes, you can't name a bookstore P&T Knitwear. And once he told me I couldn't do it, wait, I was wait. like. That's what everybody said, Bradley. In yeah. fact, I remember the first meeting where we were talking about it. And you'd floated it. I think most of us thought it was just sort of like a notion. But it was, in fact, 
I think it's the right thing. I think in order no, no, to I think it is the right thing, but at the beginning we didn't know store, that. It needs to have an icon, a totally different, almost confusing right. name. Um, so that's what, <laughs> that's why it's called it. So it's to honor my family. So that's the bookstore. Um, Vermont, uh, as listeners know, we spend a lot of time and money trying to create something called universal school meals in right. different states that would guarantee free breakfast, free lunch to every student, regardless of income or anything else, just to make sure that everyone has it. Right. Um, two states so far have universal school meals, Maine and California. We worked on both of those bills. Um, we have been driving a bill in the state of Vermont that would make them the third. Um, it's unfortunately sunsets after a year, so we're going to have to keep renewing it. But um, we passed out of the Vermont House last week. Uh, this is the final week of session in Vermont. I think we have the votes in the Senate. We are running a very aggressive campaign up there. Um, we'll find out in the next week whether we get it. I would have to bet that we do, um, but but it's it's exciting and, and meaningful. And then we've got legislation in New Jersey that would provide school meals for another 26,000 kids, basically increasing the poverty line for who, who's eligible for it. Um, I think we'll get that one done too. And the final bill we've got outstanding is a campus uh, hunger-free campus bill in Massachusetts that would, because there's a big problem on college campuses of students who are going hungry, and I think they kind of get ignored because they're not little kids, so they're not kind of inherently sympathetic, right. um, but not really adults yet. So we have been running bills in different states specifically to address this issue, and I think we've got a decent shot. So my hope is within a few months from now, we'll have created some version of universal school meals in Vermont. Uh, we will have provided breakfast for 26,000 more kids and lunch in New Jersey. Um, we did a big bill in Kentucky that already passed that provides bre- breakfast for uh, 260,000 kids, I think. Um, and then we passed the uh, the Campus Free Hunger Bill in Massachusetts. So there's that. A few others. One is um, mobile voting. So uh, as everyone who listens to podcast knows, we are funding and running the effort to create mobile voting possible in the United States. Uh, the first bill that we're running that would create mobile voting for all voters, right? Mm-hmm. So we've run bills and we've passed them to expand it to people with disabilities, deployed military, kind of specific groups, um, District of Columbia. And it's, it got out a little ahead of us. It was because a student of mine two years ago at Columbia was so into it, mm-hmm. his sister's a member of the D.C. City Council. He told her about it. She got really into it. She introduced a bill, right? So we've got, but now I want to pass it. So 13 members of the D.C. City Council. You need seven votes to pass a bill. We've right. got eight co-sponsors. But Charles Allen, who is the chairman of the relevant committee, <laughs> is not letting us have a hearing on Wait, it. so you have eight of 13 that you yeah. need. But, but you got one guy that you I got can't. one guy who's blocking me procedurally, right? What's his objection? He says that, oh, you know, election security experts don't like this. And right. my view is like, all right, let's have a hearing and talk about it, right? Right, right? The majority of your colleagues want this. And by the way, it's a civil rights issue because the vast majority of people who are on our bill are pastors and people in the African-American community. But it's just, since, it's, since it's just something to discuss, to have a hearing at this point, yeah. what does he... He do just you, does... He, well, he knows I have the votes, so he wants to... The, the best way to stop me from passing this thing is to, just to bottle it up completely. I see. So to stop that, uh, we have declared war on Charles Allen. So there's been a mobile billboard truck parked outside of his home for the last week uh, attacking him. Uh, apparently his kids have Good seen old it fashioned upset about that. Yep. Uh, we've got digital ads going. We're working on radio. We've wow. got rallies. So now he has agreed for that guy. to a meeting with our coalition okay. at the end of May. So I will slightly you, you lighten got, you, up. You got his attention. Yeah, I'm not going to take my foot off his neck, but I'm going to less, lessen the pressure a little bit um, till we get the meeting, and if in the meeting he then agrees to the hearing, I will leave him alone. Right. Um, if he doesn't, I'm going to make it ten times worse. But the point of my saying all of this is, if you are a politician in this country who happens to listen to this podcast, and you think if you oppose mobile voting, you think you can just do it and get away with it, it's right. not going to happen. I am going to rip you to fucking shreds. 
Um, and the final two things. Did we mention the Gotham Book Prize winner already? I think we did, right? No, I don't think we did. Uh, so I mean, we talked Elliott, about a lot. Uh, the Invisible, uh, Invisible Child uh, was awarded the Gotham Book Prize this year. Um, she narrowly beat out a uh, book uh, called Ghosts of New York. Um, and uh, we awarded her the prize a week or two ago, sent her the money. Um, and now we are starting to think about uh, – books for, for next year. And I think this was a little bit of a soft year. So the first year, we had a lot of great contenders. This year, I think there wasn't quite as much. Um, but I've already read a bunch, a couple of books that I'm excited about. Name one that you, that you uh, really Olga Dies Dreaming, so far, would be my first choice. A okay. uh, really good novel. Um, I forget the name of the author. But, um, but I think we're going to have a good, good bumper crop for next year. Great. Um, and the last thing is, speaking of books, I'm a huge Don Winslow fan. Right? Okay. I love, have you read his books? No. So I mean, would, you know, it's funny. I tried one once, the one like that everybody it. I didn't like. Savages? It. No. The, Power of the Dog? Mm, can't even remember. It I, wasn't the NYPD one, was yeah, it? Yeah, it was the well, NYPD one. So here's the problem. It was the NYPD yeah, it's one. it's horrible. So Don Winslow writes incredible books about the drug trade in Southern California and Mexico. Right. He wrote this incredible trilogy, uh, The Power of the Dog, The Border, and The Cartel, that I think is as good as anything ever written about the drug trade. Right. He wrote a novel, novel called Savages that's absolutely fantastic. Right. Um, this new book that came out, and I was really, Howard and I were like really texting back and forth the time the review came out, or we were excited about it. It's really bad. And I think it's, everyone's really bad. It's, it's for him, it's really bad. And the reason why is this is the second time now that he has written a book outside of his expertise. This is about mobsters in Providence. I know that he happened to grow up in Rhode Island, but the guy's been in California and Hawaii his whole life. Um, and it is so overdone. And it is everyone is he's trying to show how. Wait, is it based on that? Uh, what's it, Buddy Cianci? The the uh, no, 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 Buddy. That'd be a lot more interesting. It's right. just based on like a, a mob family. Those two Italians, Irish, they were together, then they split, and right. there was a big war, right? And the problem was one, the writing was wildly overdone. Like he wanted to show how genuine he was to the point where it became a parody, which was the same thing with his NYPD book. Right. Two. The underlying thing just wasn't that interesting. Right. So he's a good writer, so the story still flows. I read the whole book. Um, but for Don Winslow fans out there, I would say, other than the NYPD book, this is his second worst. So I would not waste time reading it. Oh, my God. That's terrible. No, okay. you know, you know it's funny why I'm doing this a little bit? When his last – God, I'm such a vindictive person. When his last book came out, right. I asked him to come on the podcast, and he said no. Oh, really? Yeah. So, <laughs> but you, don't, you generally don't like the book, though. It's not like— It's a bad book. Okay. Um, right. and, and by the way, I send as gifts, whenever anyone's like in the hospital, right. the, the, I, my standard gift is like 10—I send them a whole all the Don, good Don Winslow books because really? I feel like they're, just, they're enjoyable and they're fun and they're substantive. And so I've probably sent that package out to 10, 12 different people. So I've bought literally hundreds of Don Winslow books in my life. Wow. Okay. Um, so I'm, I, I might be his biggest customer. And you're going to have them at the store, obviously. You know, not till he writes a better book. Well, you'll have the old ones, though. you got to have the good classics. Yeah, but it's a little weird to like do a reading for a book that came out in 1993 or something. No, I just right? mean sell the books. Yeah, oh, yeah. we'll sell the books yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, the only books we're not going to sell are those from New York Times reporters. Um, <laughs> everyone else we will sell. Um, All right, Bradley, now we got to wrap it up. All right, we'll yeah. end it. Thanks. See you Thanks. next week.